to save me mention anything in that. Okay, so um, Paul, Paul's letter to Titus then. What we're going to do in our introductory night, we're going to do three things. First thing we're going to do is we're going to read Titus. And uh, we're going to read a letter as you would read a letter. We're going to read it all at once. We don't get a letter and read the first paragraph and say, I'll get up tomorrow morning in the quiet time, I'll read the next three lines. You know, you read a letter right through, and then, of course, you go back over it, and you might want to zero in on something. So that's what we're going to do first of all. Just hear the letter read in one go, which, as you know, takes seven minutes or so. Um, the second thing then I want to do is I, I do want to give you a few pointers on some things that you could be looking out for as you read the letter. And it will be at that point that I will you know, give you a handout there that has some information that you can chase up on your own. And then the, the greater part of the evening is going to be looking at the introduction to the letter, which is actually the first four verses. So those are the three things we're going to be doing. Um, so let's, let's hear God's word. Let's hear what Paul wrote to Titus. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness and the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, 
But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures, we lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. 
You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Did anyone time it? I think it was eight minutes. Okay, um, just a few things to sort of orientate you as you come to, to do a deep dive into this short section of Scripture. I want to just tell you a little bit, just some snippets about Titus himself. And the first thing that's of note is that Titus is actually mentioned by name 12 times in the New Testament. Overwhelmingly, it comes in one particular book, which I'll come to. But Titus is referred to as Paul's spiritual son. In other words, he came out of Paul's evangelistic ministry. He's Paul's true child, according to a common faith, as we read tonight. And the interesting thing about Titus is Titus was from a Greek background. Titus was a Gentile by birth, okay? And he actually remained uncircumcised by Paul's direct command because Titus himself actually became a test case of the gospel and how a sinner is put right with God. Justification by faith and nothing to do with observance of the law. And you can read about the sort of dispute around Titus in Galatians chapter 2. But he, he became a real trusted partner and fellow worker with Paul. And the situation that he had been already involved in, which would come then, this, this situation we're going to encounter uh, tonight is a different one. But it was with the Corinthians that Titus really comes into his own. And of the 12 references to Titus in the New Testament, eight of them come in 2 Corinthians. And Titus was sent to the Corinthians. Paul always had a tempestuous relationship with the, the Corinthians. They were very volatile in their faith. And Titus was sent in to do two things. Number one, to, to help them complete the collection that they'd started for the poor saints back in Judea. But secondly, he was sent in to just sort of maintain the relationship with the Apostle Paul, to act as some sort of mediator, to, to pour sort of calm waters on the situation. And um, one commentator, I love how one commentator describes Titus 
when you see the situation that he's also dropped into in Crete. He refers to him as a crisis intervention specialist. And that tells you something about the character that Titus obviously had, that Paul could trust him to deal with delicate situations in the church context. Um, you can infer from the letter that Titus had obviously been with Paul on Crete, but Paul had gone on and he has left Titus to, Patrick used the phrase, to, to put things onto a more formal footing, to, to bring some sort of order and structure that would set the Cretan church, you know, position it for going forward. That's exactly what Titus was there to do. Now, Paul also tells us in the letter that he hoped that sooner or later, Artemis or Tychicus would come to Crete and that that would release Titus so that he could then join Paul, who was planning to spend the winter season at Nicopolis. So obviously Paul wanted Titus back with him again as they would move on to some new gospel venture. But that's just to, sort of, that's just to give you some sort of flavor of the man himself and his, his uh, Christian experience, shall we say. But we're going to take a wee bit of a look at the letter now. I wonder, um, I wonder, did you, as I was reading that, did any particular phrase stand out for you? Yes, but I don't think it would be the one that you wanted. What was it? Uh, before the beginning of time. Okay, that wasn't it, you're right. I knew it was No, there was, you actually heard one phrase eight times. You'll kick yourself when you see this. It's, it's not even two full pages on my Bible. And there's one phrase that occurs eight times. Now, in a short letter, a phrase that occurs eight times, you might just have landed on the theme of the letter. So, it's, it's nobody still got it? Yep. Doing good. So, let, let's just take a wee run through with me. And I don't know whether you underline things in your Bible or not, but if you do, it would be very wise to underline this. Okay? First of all, in the context of elders and the type of people they're to be, chapter 1, verse 8, rather he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good. Elders are to love what is good. Chapter 1, verse 8. But then go to the last verse of chapter 1, where he's now talking about these false teachers who are seducing households, leading them into error, and contaminating the people, and leaving them in what state? Verse 16. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Okay? Now, 
When you come into chapter 2, Paul starts to speak to different groupings within the church, giving them some instruction on what their lives are to look like. Have a look at verse 3. He's referring to the older woman. He's to teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Verse 5. This is the, uh, sorry, verse 7. What Titus, the example that Titus is to set for the young men in everything Set them an example by doing what is good. Verse 14. Why did Jesus Christ save us? Why did the grace of God appear? Well, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. We haven't finished. What's our obligation to the civil authorities? Chapter 3, verse 1. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. Verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God, that's every single Christian, may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. And finally, just before he signs off, nobody's going to miss it, verse 14, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. As we will see as we work through this letter, the theme of Paul's letter to to Titus is this. I put it like this. Gospel-generated goodness in the people of God. Gospel-generated goodness in the people of God. And that is what we are going to be spending well, eight or nine studies, you're going to see that key phrase that just, once you see it, you can't unsee it. You'll see it every time you read through it. That's what it's all about. It's all about good works. And evangelicals, we have a strange relationship with good works, haven't we? We can be so busy explaining that no one is made right with God by good works you'd almost think we don't like good works. And Paul is going to just uh, set the balance on that again. He's going to tell us explicitly that salvation does not come by good works. But if salvation comes, (laughs) it better lead to good works or it's not the real thing. So that's, that's just a week. Now, what I'm going to do is Reuben and Andrew, would you two guys take a pile each and just whiz round and give people the handout? And while they're doing that, you will get an outline, an outline of the sort of taking you through the letter. Uh, 
which I'm not going to spend any more time on. You, you do that on your own time. Um, well, I'll just say this. The first four verses, the first four verses of the introduction to the letter that I'm going to uh, share a wee bit about now, the rest of chapter one is all about elders. Chapter two is the first 10 verses is Paul telling different groups how they're to live the good life. Verse 11 to 15 then is the, the basis, the, the grace basis of living that way. Then when you come into chapter 3, he widens out into our, our lives among our neighbors and tells us again what underpins that. And then in, from chapter 3, verse 9 to the end, you have some final instructions. So if you keep reading it, you'll see those clear blocks of material. They'll just, you'll just be able to walk your way through the letter. So what we're going to do now in the remaining time is we're going to take a closer look at the first four verses, which is Paul's introduction to the letter. And there's three elements to that. So if you look at the text now, if you look at the text, there's three elements to Paul's introduction. Number one, the letter begins with Paul's description of himself. He is a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the second element, and this is the key. This is the key part. He outlines the purpose of his ministry what his entire ministry is about as a servant of God and as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And here it is. It's to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, godly goodness in a life. That's the purpose and it's all done, in the, he says, in the context of the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now, at his appointed season, he has brought to light this hope of eternal life through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. So that's the, the first element is the description of Paul. The second element is his the purpose of his ministry. And the third element then, of course, is Paul's greeting to Titus. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. I'm going to concentrate on the purpose of Paul's ministry. Remember who we're listening to. Let me just say that. We are listening to someone who is a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Understand the capacity in which Paul speaks in this letter. First of all, to Titus and through Titus to the believers on the island of Crete in the first century, but through Titus also to ourselves in the 21st century. We're listening to a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. That means 
Paul speaks with divine authority. We are not at liberty to ignore or to change or to challenge what Paul is teaching. As Paul points out in verse 3, it's by God's command at his appointed season that Paul is preaching the truth of eternal life. Never underestimate the authority of the Apostle Paul, because that's a, a common enough thing in certain circles in the church now. And never underestimate the unique place that Paul holds in salvation history as the appointed apostle to the Gentiles. The reason we are here tonight in the 21st century as Gentiles who are in Christ is because of the ministry of the apostle Paul. But let me just underline for you again, what was the purpose the goal, the intended result of Paul's ministry. What was it? To further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life. The purpose of Paul's God-ordained ministry was to facilitate the spiritual growth and development of the people of God in godliness. As their faith matures and their knowledge increases, so they will advance progress in godly character and conduct. I would suggest to you that that is both the purpose statement for Paul's entire ministry, and as we have seen, it's his purpose statement for this letter that he writes to Titus to communicate to the believers on the island of Crete. It's all to result in godliness. That's the point of salvation that it produces godly people who do what is good in this world as we wait for the fullness of our salvation. I refer you again to the eight references to what is good if you think that seems a bit of a leap that I'm making there. No, that's exactly what Godly goodness is what this letter is all about. And, you know, is there any other message that is more urgent for us to hear today as believers? Living now in a context where Christians are being increasingly marginalized, now being more and more misrepresented, certainly misunderstood, what better response can the people of God offer to that other than living lives of sheer winsome goodness? That's our response to what's happening. 
And what, what Paul will do in the letter, in the very heart of the letter, is he's going to break down for us what this godly good living looks like in everyday life. That's the whole point of the first 10 verses of chapter 2, where he looks at the domestic situation, and the sort of family situation, the household situation, with those who are older, those who are younger, those who are male, those who are female, those who work as household slaves. What does this godly good life actually involve? And then when he comes to the first two verses of chapter 3, he'll widen it out and he'll say, well, how do we relate to the authorities over us? How do we relate to our pagan neighbors? What's, what does goodness, godly goodness look like? What does it involve? It's incredibly practical. And he'll also tell the Christians how that life is possible. It's all underpinned by the grace of God come to us in Jesus Christ. The experience of salvation is what fuels this changed good life. But what I want to, to, to finish with tonight is I want to uh, draw your attention to the context within which this development in godliness takes place. Okay? And we have it here. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, but which now, at his appointed season, he's brought to light through Paul's preaching of the gospel. The people who Paul and Titus are calling to grow in godliness, to develop in godliness, they're doing so because they possess the hope of eternal life. Later on in the letter, in chapter 3, verses 3 to 7, Paul will un unpack in considerable detail what it means to be an heir of the hope of eternal life. But understand this first and foremost. Paul is not saying, when he talks about in the hope of eternal life, he is not saying that we don't possess eternal life now, but hope that we might get it in the future. That's not what he's saying. No, eternal life is something that's already been brought to light through his preaching of the gospel. The message of eternal life is already out there. God has made good on his promise to provide eternal life. Now, of course, there is a future dimension to eternal life. It's in that sense that we hope for it because we haven't received the fullness of it yet. That still awaits us at Christ's return, as we shall see in chapter 2. But eternal life is a present 
reality for the people of God. It's something we are already enjoying, something we're already experiencing, and something that is already transforming us. And what Paul wants the believers to see right at the start is this, that this transforming experience of having the hope, the certain expectation of the fullness of eternal life, he wants them to see that it has the firmest of foundations. The firmest of foundations. What is the foundation of our salvation? What's the foundation of our present possession of eternal life? What's the foundation of the future fulfillment of eternal life? What is it? Do you know what it is? Paul tells us. It's the character of God. This is how sure God's people's salvation actually is. In the hope of eternal life, which God who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. How more certain and assured can we be of the gift of eternal life when it has been promised by the God who cannot lie, who cannot break his own word, who cannot go against himself, who cannot fail to be faithful. He just can't do it. And you see this description of God that Paul uses here, the God who cannot lie. Oh, how that would have resonated with Titus and the believers on the island of Crete. Why? Well, the Cretans had developed a very unfortunate national characteristic in the ancient world. And this isn't Paul being a, some sort of racist. What he does is he quotes one of the Cretans' own revered prophets. Epimenides is his name. Because what did he say about the Cretans? He was one. This is what he said about them in chapter 1, verse 12. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. You guys have earned this reputation. They continually told lies. Their word could not be trusted. Not so the God of their salvation, says Paul. The promise of eternal life that has been brought to light through the gospel that Paul preached by the command of God. You see, God doesn't ask us to become godly in the hope of obtaining eternal life. He calls us to cooperate with him and to develop in godliness because we possess eternal life. 
He has given it to us, he says. And he will not and he cannot take it from us. That is the security within which Christians are called to advance in godliness. God cannot lie. He cannot promise you eternal life if you believe in Jesus and then go back on his word. That's the foundation for us to move forward in godliness, in goodness. Praise God, God can't do everything. Praise God, he can't lie. Do you remember? Do you remember the incident with Balaam in the Old Testament? When he wanted to curse the people of God so he could get his reward from Balak, the king? And he was, he was unsuccessful in that. And this is what he was forced to concede. Numbers 23, verse 9. God is not human that he should lie. Not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I suspect that's in the apostle's mind even as he writes that description. Or think of Abraham, to whom God made those incredible promises that our salvation comes out of. In your seed, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. The promise of the Messiah, the promise of Christ. I'm going to finish by reading some words from Hebrews chapter 6. And I want you to keep Paul's description of God in mind. The God who cannot lie. Who calls his people, equips his people to go and develop in godliness. In the security of his promise. In the security of his character. Hebrews 6 verse 13. When God made his promise to Abraham... Since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose, very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us the hope of eternal life, may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters into the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. 
Over the next few weeks, we're going to hear God's call to godliness in our lives. Through the letter to Titus, he's going to break it down and tell us what it looks like in everyday life, the type of character we're to move towards. But as we're called to costly godliness, God says to us, I have given the promise of eternal life to you. And I cannot lie. I cannot lie. He has pledged himself to us. That is the confidence that the people of God actually have. So open ourselves up to what godly goodness is going to look like in your life and in my life. And it's all done within the security of the promise of eternal life. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.